0: Hi, Louis. Hello. I'm going to get started. Um, So you're getting no credit for listening to me today, but I had given this talk a few weeks ago to the um, um, Organ Transplant Center, and I thought it would be potentially of relevance uh, to a... um, um, broader nephrology audience so hence um, uh, uh, this talk today and essentially it's going to be about one gene called apol1 and it's about assessing future risk of kidney disease in a group of people who are typically exceptionally healthy where a nephrologist is expected to among other things assess um, their future risk of kidney disease and determine if it's appropriate or not to subject them to a unilateral nephrectomy for the sake of another person. Um, So um, I have no uh, disclosures. And um, here are my objectives. Um, I hope to be able to tell you and convince you that there's a difference between an association between two events or variables, um, uh, the risk for a certain event and direct causality, which is not only true in genetic medicine, but it's also true for environmental risk factors and environmental associations. Um, I also want you to come away from this uh, realizing that genetic traits may be enriched in selected populations. And obviously the gene of interest today is APOL1 and it's enriched in those of sub-Saharan African ancestry. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but here is where you're going to learn this if you already don't know this, and that's that disparities in health indicators have complex historical, political, social, and economic origins, and this can be exacerbated by medical practice. And in fact, I think this this week's uh, Grand Rounds is on um, race uh, and ancestry in uh, uh, medical school curricula. Um, also for you to recognize that transparency is important when using clinical judgment where objective data is lacking. That is transparency with the, with the patient. Um, to remember that medical practice, at least when it comes to living donation, breaches the principle of primum non nocere, which is first do no harm, because we're subjecting a healthy person to an nephrectomy to benefit another. And in it comes to living donation, we need to be aware that medical decision making should balance donor autonomy, the right of a donor to make decisions about his or her own um, life uh, with that of provider paternalism, which is the 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 practice of a physician to be the ultimate arbiter of uh, medical decisions. Okay, so I'm going to outline this talk uh, in the following way. There's going to be first um, a brief discussion about the APOL1 gene and the discovery of its role in kidney disease, where that um, um, disease association with gene risk comes from, and I'm going to help to distinguish risk assessed from case control studies versus population-based studies, very briefly talk to you about the function of the ApoL1 protein, and then in the second part of the talk, I'm going to talk about ApoL1 in living donors and how um, one might approach testing for a um, kidney-related risk gene in these living donors. So first, what do association studies tell us? Well, association studies first may be random or real, and we all know about the risk, the association between moderate alcohol intake and the reduced risk of death. Um, And that has sort of led us to say that perhaps if we take alcohol in moderation, we will improve our um, chances of survival. Although that prospect of randomized, double-blind, randomized study has not been done. Also important to know that associations are not the same as risk factors for the associated event, hence alcohol and uh, death is an association, not necessarily causality. Here's an example of an association taken to a ridiculous extreme, but it's meant to emphasize the point that associations are simply that. So this is an association of the uh, relationship between, crude oil imports into the United States from the country Norway, and the drivers that are killed in railway train collision. So these are automobile drivers killed by uh, collision with a railway train at a railway crossing. And this is, if you will, on the x-axis years from 1999 to 2009. And on the y-axis, the number of million barrels of oil on one one y-axis and the railway train collisions on the other. And you can see a near-perfect correlation between US crude oil imports from Norway and drivers killed in collisions with a railway train. Now you're smart enough to know that this correlation cannot uh, be a true um, uh, uh, or relevant association because Norwegian oil should not increase the number of driver debts. There's nothing different about Norwegian oil versus uh, oil from the Gulf of Mexico. And neither do we think that the driver train collisions by going up or down in value will drive up the uh, tendency to buy Norwegian oil imports. In fact, the data sources itself tell us that these is just a random association. One comes from the Department of Energy and one comes from the Department of Health and Human Services. And if you go to that website that I have on my screen, you can find a number of these spurious correlations where some guy went around looking for curves and lines that could be superimposed on one another. All that to tell you that associations do not indicate which factors influencing which. Associations obviously do not tell us if that's a true association or not. Associations can be statistically significant. And in fact, there's a lot of um, publications about statistically significant associations that may be clinically trivial. And even if the association is um, clinically relevant and um, real and substantial, they do not prove causality, meaning that doesn't mean that one goes around trying to change the the risk factor because you wanna change the outcome. So briefly now moving to genetic disease versus genetic risk. A genetic disease is a disease where a single gene with a single um, variation in it can cause a disease. And a disease like ADPKD comes from um, usually a single base change uh, in a single gene that changes a single amino acid that has a very large effect size meaning it causes a disease with substantial morbidity and an increased mortality, that disease being ADPKD. So that's a monogenic disease. That's a, that's a genetic disease. Compare that with a genetic susceptibility or genetic risk, which means when you have certain genetic variants, you have an increased risk for disease, but it's not sufficient to cause the disease. DVT, for example, is a very common um, clinical disease we have that has both environmental and genetic risk factors, smoking, um, estrogen in women, and uh, factor V Leiden is a genetic risk factor for, um, uh, for DVT, but it's not sufficient to cause DVT. So we know the following, Factor V Leiden associates with DVT, Factor V Leiden increases risk of DVT, but Factor V Leiden does not cause DVT. Um, The baseline risk in a 20-year-old with no risk factors for DVT is about 1 in 10,000. If you're heterozygous for the Factor V Leiden, again a single base change that causes a single amino acid change your risk goes up fivefold. So you have a risk now of one in 2000 and you as a clinician can determine who should be tested for factor five Leiden, either preemptively before they've got disease or when they present to you with a DVT. Um, um, and it's important for you to know, perhaps when you're making that clinical decision that this factor five Leiden II um, is enriched in certain populations. In fact, Leiden is a city in Holland. And those with Northern European ancestry have a 6% prevalence for heterozygous factor V and That's substantial. So one in 16 people are um, carrying a major risk factor for DVT. The prevalence in African-Americans is less than 1%. So if you were in your clinic and you had a person of an appropriate ancestry, you might choose or not to do the um, factor V Leiden uh, gene testing. So that brings me to l 1. Um, we know that African-Americans or Blacks have a higher risk of end-stage kidney disease compared to those of European ancestry. And the initial studies come, came from GWAS, which stands for Genome-Wide Association Studies. So again, that word association. Um, and genome-wide association studies are where single nucleotide variants that are highly polymorphic polymorphic all across the genome are correlated with individual diseases or events in the population. And you're trying to then determine if there are particular genetic risk um, uh, alleles that might reside at specific regions of the chromosome or locuses or loci. And those genome-wide association studies initially pointed to the gene APOL1 in African-Americans with FSGS. So when they did did this case control studies of African-Americans with FSGS and compared to them to African-Americans without FSGS, um, they found that there was a major signal at the position in the chromosome where APOL1 gene resided. So here is a segment of a chromosome These are various genes that are right next to each other, MYH9, APOL1, APOL2, APOL4, all of these dots are single nucleotide variants, and you can see the risk of disease is plotted in on a log scale on the y-axis, and as it gets higher, that tells us that there is a higher probability that that risk allele associates with a certain gene, or that variant is indicating a signal for a certain gene that is highly enriched in cases versus controls. And it turned out that the signal with the the highest statistical significance was on this region of APOL1 um, that uh, we now know is the um, single nucleotide variants that code for two variants within the same gene, APOL1. We call those two variants, G1 and G2. So the wild type version of APOL1 is G0. And the two rather um, common variants in APOL1 uh, that we're talking about today were termed G1 and G2. Those are just names for unique genetic signatures in a single gene. And we know today that two copies of those variants in any combination, G1 with G1, G1 with G2, or G2, G2, confer that increased risk of uh, FSGS. Um, Over the years, when you sort of look at the way that this genetic variant has gotten enriched, you get the sense that this was enriched because of positive selection, meaning it provided a survival advantage and it kept getting more and more prevalent in the population where it first arose. And we know based on ancestral dating that G1 and G2 rose recently, that recently is in quotes to indicate that we all came out of Africa, but those that are more recent um, have a higher degree of these alleles than those of us who came out of Africa 50,000 plus years ago. And today this G1 and G2 is seen in those not only who still live in sub-Saharan Africa, but who have um, um, uh, traveled to other parts of the world, um, often um, not under their own control. And we know today that it's likely that these two alleles became enriched in the population because in heterozygosity, they provide protection against an African form of sleeping sickness called trypanosoma bruse, rudisensae, and gambiense. And that study was published in Science. So this is a cartoon now of the APOL1 uh, protein that has a signal peptide, has various domains. This is the end of the protein that actually appears to be able to bind to N-lyse trypanosoma. And here is the wild type amino acid sequence. Now this is a sequence only in a short segment at the C-terminus of the protein. That's the wild type sequence. G1 is actually two different amino acids closely linked together that are in near-perfect linkage disequilibrium, meaning almost 99.8% of the time, these two variants go together. On occasion, you can get one or the other. And when these two occur together, that's the G1 allele. And the G2 allele is a separate two amino acid deletion in the same region. And G2 and G1 are in complete Um, linkage equilibrium, meaning those two never go together. So in African-Americans, the the non-risk ApoL1 is 87% of the population. And again, non-risk is having just one or no risk allele, so G0, 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 G1, or G0, G2, while the high-risk ApoL1 risk allele requires two copies, and that's present in 13% of the population. So 37% of, the, of Americans with African ancestry have at least one copy, and 13% have two copies. And it's unevenly split between G1 and G2. And here's our thinking about how APOL1 um, uh, has become enriched. So it is capable of binding to the trypanosome, shown here in a cartoon fashion, and causing lysosomal swelling and lysis once taken up by the trypanosome. Um, We don't quite know how it causes or contributes to kidney disease, but there are several hypotheses. Um, One is that in the podocyte, it forms a pore, that is, the genetic variants that cause these two protein forms can um, form a pore and cause cell lysis or rearrange the cytoskeleton or cause misfolding in the ER or um, changed mitochondrial properties. Regardless of the cause, it is clear that when G1, G2 are expressed within the podocyte, you can substantially increase your risk of kidney disease. But the mechanism remains to be worked out. This is just a map to show you where um, um, the risk variants today exist um, in Africa. And so here is a. heterozygous gene uh, prevalence for G1 and G2. The darker the shade, the more the prevalence. So you can see in Nigeria, 49% in uh, where this dot exists are heterozygous for G1. Uh, in some other parts of West Africa, it is similarly high, 43, 38, 49. This is similarly for G2, where you can see the substantial prevalence. Um, as high as 20 here, 19 uh, down here, 22 um, down here, but all of this is sub-Saharan Africa. And you can see there's virtually no G1 or G2 um, north of that um, uh, uh, line, which corresponds almost perfectly with the area of endemicity for human African trypanosomiasis, where the Gambian se form is here and the Rhodesian Zae form is there. Um, And consistent with the fact that these two variants arose independently, there are differences in G1 and G2 that for purposes of this discussion are fairly subtle. One protects against acute sleeping sickness, rudisian one appears to protect against cambian C1 of them increases uh, risk of HIV associated nephropathy, the other one doesn't, one appears to result in an earlier onset of end stage kidney disease uh, while the other doesn't seem to change the slope that much this is the population wide worldwide prevalence and you know the darker shades of uh, violet and purple mean increasing prevalence while uh, shades of green mean uh, either none or very low prevalence and you can see that most of that high prevalence today is in parts of sub saharan africa and in the, in the United States where African Americans uh, live and the Caribbean, but not in other parts of Central and South America, reflecting if you will, um, the uh, consequences of the uh, slave trade in the 16th, 17th centuries where people from West Africa were brought to um, parts of uh, Brazil parts of the West Indies and uh, the United States. Um, so today, when you go to look at large population uh, genetic databases, uh, the population prevalence of G1 and G2, I've already told you. In the Latino, that's the all of people here um, who identify as Latino, it is fairly low, but it is enriched in certain populations. So if your person in a clinic is from Mexico, you may have a different discussion rather than if they were from Barbados or one of the British colonies. And in South Asians, too, um, prevalence for this genetic variant is very low. Um, And so uh, while the first study I told you was on APOL1 and FSGS, we now know today that APOL1 risk variants substantially increase your risk for certain kidney diseases, but not all. Um, and what we know is that APOL1 risk variants, the same risk alleles I was telling you about, either has no impact on the disease, or has a variable impact on the development of chronic kidney disease or the progression to end-stage renal disease. And not all risk factors are additive. So, for example, APOL1 risk variants do not substantially increase your risk of IgN nephropathy or end-stage renal disease from IgN nephropathy does not increase your incidence of diabetic kidney kidney disease. Although diabetes is the commonest risk factor for kidney disease, it does not appear to increase the incidence of diabetic kidney disease. But a lot of other kidney diseases, lupus, non-diabetic chronic kidney diseases that are not uh, um, formally classified, um, hypertension associated ESRD, FSGS, HIV associated kidney disease, um, and um, if you were to use interferon for certain um, t- to treat certain kidney diseases, you can get interferon associated FSGS. And if you have the APOL1 risk alleles, that's two copies, your risk goes up from 1.5 fold all the way up to greater than 100 fold, depending on what the other um, disease is. So lupus and APOL1 have a certain. Um, interactiveness or additivity. Um, Hypertension uh, with APOL1 has a huge additivity. It goes up 7 to 11 fold, FSGS 17 fold, HIV in the US 29 fold, HIV in Africa 89 fold. So that tells us that not all risk factors are additive and it tells us that there are non-biological risk factors that have an impact because the same disease, HIV associated nephropathy, um, your risk goes up nearly 30 fold if you're in the US and goes up nearly 90 fold if you're in South Africa. So there are other non-biological factors that are clearly additive. All of this data comes from case control studies. So you take hundreds of people with FSGS and compare them to people uh, that uh, don't have FSGS. And you look to see what the carriage rate for APOR1 risk Mm -hmm. alleles is in the cases compared to controls. Those are case control studies. Today, from um, anecdotal case reports and case series, we know that this same um, risk uh, allele may be contributing to COVID-19 associated glomerulopathy and malarial glomerulopathy. Okay, we're gonna move now from case control studies to population studies, because you'll get the impression from the case control studies that your risk of getting kidney disease from APOL1 is huge. Um, but let's move to population study. So this is a study in a true pop, um, a large population of community dwellers, 15,140 people who to get into the study were aged between 45 and 64 and could not have prior known chronic kidney disease. And it's an it's a prospective observational study. And now they've gone back and looked at um, the uh, slope of decline in GFR in three different groups. Whites and then Blacks with low-risk APOL1 alleles, that's 87% of of Blacks, and the 13% group that carry two high-risk alleles. And you can see, and this, by the way, is the median EGFR decline with time over a 25-year follow-up, median with 10th and 90th percentile of EGFR. Um, and what you see is that a substantial overlap in the lines between whites, low-risk blacks and high-risk blacks, although the slope is different for all three. So taking a person's ancestry doesn't really tell us where they're going to be. You can simply say that as a population, they're going to have a faster or slower decline with time. Um, and In this particular study, blacks had a higher incidence of hypertension, diabetes, and end-stage renal disease, and the incidence rate for ESRD in this group, if you have whites as the reference group, is 1.87 for black low risk and 2.84 black for black high risk. So that's about a two-fold increased risk if you carry the APOL1 risk allele and presumably have no other risk factors. Another population-based study, the REGARD study, it's a geographically diverse cohort of 30,000 individuals. This did not exclude people with CKD, uh, and there was a substantial number of Blacks in this population. Again, these are retrospective um, studies on large population-based cohorts. And the incidence of ESRD during follow-up was 6.6 per 1,000 patient years. After a mean of 6.5 years for those with two risk variants versus those with zero to one variant, which is 3.8. So again, the hazard ratio is about twofold of the risk of getting ESRD uh, after a mean follow-up of 6.5 years. Another study, this is a study only of African Americans, the ASC study, which is a cohort of with CKD attributed to hypertension. Um, between 1995 and 2007, and the study really wasn't about APOL1, it was looking at intensive versus standard blood pressure control in African-Americans, and 58.1 reached the primary outcome, which was ESRD, or two-fold increase in serum creatinine. um, In those that had two APOL1 risk alleles versus 36.6, with a median follow-up of nine years, Um, 36.6 in those that were low risk. Again, the hazard ratio you can see is about twofold. And interestingly, there was no interaction between the baseline proteinuria um, and the number of APOL1 risk alleles, and no interaction separately between degree of blood pressure control and APOL1 risk alleles. So here is the the Kaplan-Meier curve, zero copies of APOL1, one copy of APOL1 They're um, more likely to be free of reaching the outcome that is getting to ESRD or twofold compared to those with two copies. If you separate it out by those that have proteinuria or no proteinuria, what it tells us is that these are two independent non-interactive risk factors. If you have proteinuria, that's the red line, you get to um, ESRD quicker, no surprise. If you have the APOL1 risk alleles um, you get to um, uh, um, ESRD faster and the proportionate reduction with high risk is about the same as if you had no proteinuria. Similarly for blood pressure control you can see the two um, having um, there's no difference really between Intense higher intensity blood pressure control and lower intensity high blood pressure control. Same values, these are the two. But when you separate them by, by APOL1, you can see again no interaction. High risk APOL1 alleles get you to the risk the the, the, end, the end point quicker, but no separation. So there's again no interaction between blood pressure and proteinuria. So, I'm going to conclude part one here by hoping to have convinced you that APOL1 risk alleles are only present in people of sub Saharan African ancestry. Um, two APOL1s, but not one APOL1 risk alleles, are risk factors, but they're not sufficient for, for disease. They're not causal. And the magnitude of the risk depends on the nature of that second hit. So, if you've got diabetes or IgA, It's not a second hit that adds to your ApoL1 risk. But if you got HIV, then it's a substantial second risk that could be a a problem. I also, I hope, convinced you that case control studies can show large effect sizes in susceptible populations. And question for us is the healthy living donor in front of us. The data on that person must come from population or cohort studies, not from case control studies. And the increased risk of end stage kidney disease with A4L1 is about twofold. So we'll move on from there to. Uh, living donor evaluation. Um, And from there, I will perhaps pause for a minute and take any question or two. I see a question from Fadi in the chat box about any thought on why APOL1 does not increase the risk of diabetic kidney disease. I don't know. Um, You know, again, one of of the things that you probably realize is that we find associations and then we try and um, create a um, Possible hypothesis to connect the association or the true risk. I don't know if other people have thought about why there is an increased risk of diabetic kidney disease, but I don't know the answer to that question. Any other questions? So, Christy Feria I'm going to ask a different way. Do we do we actually measure the product protein in lupus and diabetic? Anybody ever did that? The lupus HIV uh, see If there's actually increase in certain inflammatory state, which might explain it? Or are you um, aware of anybody ever done that? Yes, so there is an increase in, increase in expression of interferon-related genes that are primarily found in the protocyte of the kidney. Um, so APOL1 risk, the protein APOL1 is um, measurable in plasma, but we believe that the deleterious effects of APOL1 come from the intrarenal protocyte-specific expression of APOL1. Um, the common signature between interferon and HIV and COVID-19 and malaria is the increased upregulation of interferon-regulated uh, genes. And in many of those diseases, such as HIV-associated nephropathy, you can find the, um, and I'm blanking on the term that, uh, that uh, our nephropathologists use to denote that interferon signature within uh, the protocyte. Again, another clue that this might be an interferon-related condition, but again, it's not interferon causing the disease, it's interferon in the right um, milieu um, promoting disease. I have a question,
1: Christy, if I might. Um, Um, Yeah, go ahead. For many years, there was a question as to, pardon me, whether the risk was linked to uh, APO-L1 or whether it was actually the gene itself. Uh, The ultimate test of this would be to uh, use an an experimental animal to insert the gene or to uh, manipulate the gene, you know, uh, what do you call it, to change the... the, uh, coding. Yes. So, um, um, and, and does that actually produce the kidney disease, so that we know that it is actually the ApoL1, not a, not something else that's close by.
0: Yeah. No. It's an it's an excellent question, um, uh, Larry. And that question has been answered. Mm-hmm. So, in experimental r- mice, protocyte specific expression of ApoL1 G1 or G2, but not G0, um, is sufficient to cause um, a uh, podocytopathy, a uh, um, um, rodent disease that looks very much like FSGS. So yes, that gene is sufficient, but again, sometimes you have to tweak the mouse model, meaning you express the podocyte-specific version of G1 or G2, and then you might have to inject them with an interferon or some other second hit but in some um, uh, genetic background models of rodents, just expression of G1 and G2 is sufficient to cause kidney disease. Okay, I'm gonna move on now to the meat of the um, talk, which is APOL1 testing in living donors. So here's a case history, 58 year old African-American female. This is a real um, honest to God um, donor that came here who wants to donate to her brother with end-stage kidney disease. Um, This brother has diabetes and end-stage kidney disease. Here's what the donor evaluation showed. The BMI was 28, the blood pressure as you see it, fasting glucose was 104, two-hour glucose tolerance test is 149, hemoglobin A1C is 5.5, serum creatinine 0.9, that gives you an estimated GFR of 82 if you use the race correction. And if you don't use the race correction, your GFR is 71, measured creatinine clearance is 99. Person is blood type B, her brother recipient is O, so their blood type incompatible. The remainder of the testing is normal. So the question for you is, would you accept this living donor based on the information you already have? And feel free to unmute yourself and answer or um, put it in the chat box or just keep your thoughts to yourself and we can proceed and if there's time at the end, we can come back to this case.
1: I will repeat what you said at the beginning that we have to consider autonomy. It really depends upon whether the donor is willing to accept the risk.
0: Okay so um, the question that I already posed to you is should she be approved to donate and the second question that I have for you is should she be counseled and tested for ApoL1 risk alleles because we are measuring BMI and blood glucose and kidney function all with an attempt to try and predict a future risk of kidney disease and again you don't have to give an answer you could just be thinking about that. Okay some uh, a single multiple choice question, and I won't call anybody out, which of the following is true? Um, living kidney donation in the US um, constitutes about 30 percent of all kidney donors, is associated with a 1-250 risk of perioperative death, is associated with a 10 percent risk of end-stage kidney disease at 15 years, compared to white female donors, African-American males have a twofold increased risk of end-stage kidney disease, and 40% of living donors are biologically related to their recipients. So one or all of the above, you only get to pick one. And again, if you don't have a thought, we can quickly move on to the next uh, slide, which is the answer key. And that is that um, the only one that's true here is 40% of living donors are biologically related to their recipient. And I'm going to tell you off the bat that one in 250 risk of perioperative death is way too high. That's the risk of perioperative death, probably um, in living liver donors, um, although that may also be high for that group. And we'll get to the other other pieces of this uh, in just a second. But you need to know that 40% of living donors are biologically related to the recipients. That means a sibling, a child, or a parent for the most part. Okay, our best data in a, if you will, in a case control series comes from this very large study published in JAMA now seven years ago, um, where they looked at a retrospective study, where they looked at nearly 100,000 living donors in the United States that were in our transplant registry, UNOS database, and looked at the incidence of end-stage disease after a 15-year follow-up period. And you can see that live donors, when compared to a demographically matched cohort of relatively healthy, non donors this comes from NHANES but where you would exclude people that had kidney disease, diabetes, hypertension and you would assume that you've matched them as well as you could with actual do- people who've donated. You can see that increased risk of, life, of of ESRD after a period of 15 years that appears to be substantial and this is if you will a 18-19 um, year follow-up. Um, and at the end of that fifteen-year follow-up, the risk for intraduodenal disease in live donors is thirty per ten thousand, or zero point zero three percent. But it's a ten-fold increase, so the relative risk is ten-fold, um, and your absolute risk is thirty per ten thousand. Um, how does that uh, change based on um, race or ethnicity? And you can see immediately this is the y-axis goes up to 40 per 10,000, that it is different for um, ethnicity, race, ethnicity based. It goes up to 80. You can see live donors among African-Americans substantially higher than Hispanics, which are somewhat higher than whites. And you could argue that Blacks have the highest um, uh, relative risk of end uh, disease from donation, but that's not actually true. They have the highest absolute risk because that's the absolute risk, nearly 80. But if you wanted to know relative risk, you would argue that whites have the highest relative risk. It's, you know, um, the the non-donor cohort among white, uh, white people has a infinitesimally low risk of ESRD at the age of 15, at the end of 15 years, so that you could argue the relative risk is humongous. Um, nearly infinitesimal if this is truly zero, it's something less than 0.01. Um, but let's argue for the sake of argument that there's a hundredfold relative risk in whites and only a threefold increase in black. So that tells us the importance of knowing what absolute risk and relative risk means when you're trying to communicate risk to your patients. Um, The lifetime risk, so this is a 15 year risk, you can project the lifetime risk and it's 90 per 10,000. It goes up from 30 to 90 in all living kidney donors. Healthy controls in this particular group of non-donors, it's 14, so you can see the relative risk goes up about uh, six fold, six, seven fold. Uh, Here it is actually, lifetime relative risk goes up 6.5 fold. The absolute risk increase is that difference in number, 76 per 10,000. Um, and the unscreened controls from NHANES, which is where we used to think that living donors had a lower risk compared to the general population, have a much higher risk of ESRD. So it was correct to say that living donors have a lower risk of ESRD compared to the general population, but it wasn't true to say that living kidney donors um, do not have a higher risk of ESRD compared to a matched cohort of healthy people who did not donate. So one of the questions was um, whether kidney donors formed one of three um, uh, donors. And the answer was not that they formed one of three donors. They formed one of two donors. But since deceased donors give two kidneys, they actually form one of three kidney transplants. It's just um, one of the limbs of the question was a trick question. Um, what happens if we separate this by race, by by gender? Here too, you can see differences. Um, you know, same database, the uh, you know black men compared to black women compared to white men compared to white women. So the change between white women and black men isn't twofold, as in that question, but it's more like sixfold or sevenfold. Um, and there's also an age-based increased risk, uh, not surprising. So we know today that post-donation ESRD is influenced um, by age, gender, and ancestry. That is, age, gender, and ancestry are additive to donation in terms of future risk of ESKD, but you don't really know a whole lot else. Um, we also know that end-stage renal disease increased in donors who are related to the recipients compared to those that are not. And that is Um, in all comers is about 1.7 fold. And you can see it starts to separate by about year 15 and by 20 years is when the the curve really separates. And 40% of living donors, I told you, are biologically related to the recipient. So when you have a relative who has ESRD and you wanna donate, there's an increased two-fold risk. And in this follow-up study of actual donors, that um, risk is borne out. And it turns out that the degree of relationship also matters. So if you were a parent related to your recipient versus a completely unrelated recipient, twofold risk, sibling 1.87, child of a recipient 1.6. So again, this first degree relationship seems to confer about a twofold increased risk of end-stage kidney disease. While if you're an identical twin donor to a recipient, your risk of ESRD, that's the donors risk of ESRD is about 20 fold higher. And it doesn't stop us from taking identical twins as donors. Something to keep in mind when we make assumptions and um, assessments about APOL1 bearing um, healthy people. So, what do we normally do for living donors when we're assessing risk? Um, we know that certain things are unacceptable. We don't accept people with inadequate kidney function. We don't accept people on multiple antihypertensives. We don't accept people with diabetes, with major organ disease, with inability to give informed consent. But there are some other risk factors that are sort of softer that are getting accepted by some people in some centers if um, the donor is able to comprehend the degree of risk. So obesity, pre-diabetes, hypertension, genetic traits are all potentially acceptable risk factors. If you don't already know, here's an, a very large population-based study from Kaiser Permanente, 177,000 people who were followed for their health over a uh, between 1964 and 1973. So this is like a 40 year follow-up of people, just normal people. And we know from those studies that these are all risk factors for future um, uh, ESRD, diabetes we knew. Pre-hypertension, by the way, is a risk factor for kidney disease, 1.72, not to be ignored. Male sex is, but it's small. Here's the age-related risk, Um, higher BMI. Uh, that's a BMI of 25 to 30, not not obesity, just overweight is 1.65. And if you get to a greater than 40, class two obesity, it goes up to 4.39. Ancestry is important. You can see not just African-Americans, but Asian-Americans have an increased ancestry-based risk of E.S. And we've already talked about positive family history. Some other risk factors that you should know about, sickle cell trait, increased risk about twofold kidney stones, microscopic hematuria, low birth weight, small for gestational age, these are all risk factors for for end-stage kidney disease. And many of those are ascertainable just from a history. But other than the ones that I already mentioned to you, age, gender, ancestry, and relationship between recipient and donor, we don't know what else affects post-donation ESRD. Um, What do we know about APOL1 and living donors? Well, all we have is one study one small retrospective study. This comes from Mona Doshi. Many of you don't know her. Larry Hunsaker knows her well. She came here to complete her nephrology fellowship, I want to say now 10 or 15 years ago, and is one of our more prominent um, academic uh, exports from Iowa. So anyway, she did this um, two-center retrospective um, study of 249 African-American live kidney donors um, except that only half of them actually joined the study. And she was looking back after donation and looking at those that that um, um, were a- able to consent to the study and were agreeable to be part of the study. So in that 249 or that 136 African-American living donors who had already donated, The high risk versus low risk genotype was found in the appropriate population prevalence. 77% of these donors were first degree relatives to the people they donated to, and there was a median follow up of 12 years. So, what she showed in this retrospective study, in the small case, in the small um, cohort, was that the pre donation GFR was um, lower in those with the two high risk alleles compared to those that were not. Again, you can see there's a substantial overlap between the two groups, as there should be, but the um, uh, mean is uh, statistically different. Not um, surprisingly, therefore, if you start out with less and you take out um, some of your kidney, you're going to have less at the end, and that too is separatable after this median follow-up of 12 years between low-risk and high-risk. She looked at the... GFR slope in those that had, uh, um, again, in this in this group. And you can see that the slope is different for those with high-risk APOL1 compared to those that are low risk APOL1. Again, all of these are African-American donors who've donated. Now, this doesn't tell us whether the high-risk APOL1 related EGFR decline has been made worse by the act of donation, which is really the question at hand. And the answer is no. So here is the, the EGFR slope in ApoL1 high-risk high ApoL1 donors compared to a cohort of non-donors. You can see the slope is the same in both. So there isn't an additive effect of donation on the EGFR slope seen in high-risk ApoL1 genotype carriers. You uh, know, it was very troubling though that 10% of their uh, donors this 19 high-risk donors developed end-stage kidney disease within 20 years of donation. That's a very high number, um, but it's a very small cohort. And there was no difference in post-donation hypertension between high-risk and low-risk groups. And I've already told you the limitations, the small sample size and the limited study recruitment. Only uh, half of the available donors agreed to this follow-up. That's really all we know. There's one other study that has been done by Jamie Locke, a transplant surgeon who's at UAB in Birmingham, Alabama, who went back to an old um, um, uh, population-based study called Cardia. It's coronary artery risk development in young adults. So where, you know, many young adults of 18 to 30 age group were recruited from four urban areas in the in about 25, 30 years ago. And because they were from four urban areas, 50% of this recruited group were actually African-Americans. And so then she applied today's exclusion criteria for living donation and looked to see which potential donor in this cohort group that never went on to donate. But if you assume that they had donated, what might their risk factors be? So she went to this group, excluded those that would not have donated based on today's criteria and then looked at variables in this cohort that associated with um, chronic kidney disease stage three at a median follow-up of 20 years. So she's now trying to identify baseline risk factors in this cohort at the time of recruitment 20 years earlier for the development of CKD3 after 25 years of follow-up. And so here are the adjusted hazard ratio in a multivariable analysis. You can see um, age, Um, for every year year, about 18 up to the age of 30, you have uh, have a 1.06 hazard ratio for being male, for having a BMI greater than 30, for having impaired fasting glucose, for having a normal GFR, but less than 100. That gives you a threefold higher risk of CKD3 after 20 years. Smoking, family history of hypertension, that's a very common risk factor gives you a nearly two-fold increased risk. Families have diabetes, 2.2-fold risk. And African-Americans, whether or not you carry the risk alleles, you do have an increased risk. And she assigned points to this, which you could then use to um, uh, determine one's risk of CKD without donation after 25 years of follow-up, pretty useful. So you can imagine a male who happens to have a GFR, EGFR of 98 has 27 points. And if he's thirty years of age, he has uh, plus you know twelve more points. Um, he's already got to nearly forty points, um, and that pales in comparison. Sorry, and that's substantially more or equivalent to the risk from just having the ApoL1 risk allele. So think of it this way: if you had a female same age as a male donor with two risk alleles, and a male donor without two risk alleles. Um, Uh, plus a GFR of 98, they have the same risk. Um, Or someone with a family history of hypertension and a GFR of 98 gives you a risk greater than two risk alleles. Um, And so if you look to the 25 year risk of CKD3, which um, you can can plot on this line, which was predicted from her follow-up studies, um, you can see that someone with uh, um, just two risk alleles has a risk stage three CKD after um, uh, 25 years of about 3%. While if you had someone with um, who was a male who had um, um, a GFR of 98, who had a family history of hypertension and diabetes, so those are all very modest risk factors. Your risk factor, your risk now is about threefold higher. And so that tells us that you don't have to go on one risk allele alone. So what what happens these days in um, transplant centers when it comes to APOL1 testing? Well, there's three schools of thought. The first school is they're going to test nobody because they really don't know um, what to do with the test results. So they don't inform, they don't ask, they don't test. The other school of thought is the is the center that knows exactly what to do, because we think we know what it all means. So we're going to test the donor, we won't ask them, we'll test them all. And if they're positive, we just exclude them because we think we know what's best for them. And then there's obviously a middle ground where we inform the donor of the risk with future disease. We ask for permission to test. And if they give permission, we test and we share test results. And then we individualize decisions um, given given the uh, appropriateness of donor autonomy. And it turns out when uh, um, Elisa Gordon did a survey of um, transplant surgeons and transplant nephrologists, this is a few years ago now, 4% were routinely testing, 14% sometimes, 16% didn't know, uh, very few not, few knew what to do with test results, but a large number said they plan to use the test results in the future. Um, and here's what the most worrisome thing. When these um, test respondents were were given the answer. They were told that if you had a donor with two risk variants, 50% of them said they would recommend against donation, even though testing was not at all part of their routine practice. So, um, you know, this sort of tells us the importance of knowing what to do with the test results that you um, uh, um, want. It also turns out that um, they all believe that African American donors should be given the option of testing because it helps t- donors make donation decisions. Um, I'm gonna sp- uh, speed through this other than to tell you that when you talk to former African-American living donors and African-Americans in the community, there is strong support for APOL1 testing. There was very little support for prohibition of donation based on positive, positive uh, test results. And there was strong support for, um, for optional versus required testing. So Mona Doshi um, again the same Monodoshi Doshi I spoke about um, and others wrote a recent article in transplantation proposing a path forward so all donor candidates of appropriate ancestry should be informed all should be counseled we don't offer testing as a screening test but only after they've completed everything else and we counsel them and then we share the test results with the donor if that's the only positive test result. then with as with any other single risk factor, it should not exclude donation. If the threshold of risk, you know, the additive risk of all those risk factors are acceptable to the transplant center, then the donor should share in decision making. And obviously we don't share um, donor health information with the waitlist candidate, even if it is the related weightless candidate. Um, So I've told you this, I should stop here um, and uh, take uh, questions. We do have a long-term prospect of NIH-sponsored study on living donors that has started, but it'll take years to complete. So until then, we are operating in a data-deficient environment. Questions? Questions? So Fadi, I'm answering, I've already answered your question. Um, We should um, counsel every um, donor of an appropriate ancestry about the known association of APOL1 with kidney disease and about the likelihood that it is additive to hypertension if they develop it later, it is additive to HIV if they develop it later, but it is not additive to, to diabetes and we don't know if it's additive to diabetes. Sorry, uh, we don't know if it's additive to donation. Other comments, questions?
1: In the um, absence of a rush to comments, I will say that I was very, very influenced in my fellowship, which was quite a number of years ago when we had a, a parent who wanted to be a donor for a kid, it has nothing to do with, with uh, APO with L1 or whatever. It was just simply he wanted to be a donor to his kid, but he had mild hypertension and he was turned down and he was furious with us, asking us who we were to make a decision for him about whether he, he could give a kidney to his kid who back at that time, you know, when... Uh, yeah when dialysis in children was almost a death sentence, Mm -hmm. if you will, who were we to tell him he could not make that decision himself? And it's always just been in my mind that we have got to ask the patients what they want to do and give them the information to make a decision on their own. Yeah, yeah,
0: yes. Thank you, Larry. Um, You're absolutely right. And perhaps back in that day, there wasn't a widespread phenomenon of of unrelated people donating either. So that might have been that child's only living donor. Other comments, questions? Thank you. Not a problem. Thank you all.
1: Thank you. uh... Christy, you have performed well as always. Thank you very much. What was it? Christy, thank you. Oh, okay. Bye bye.